Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Hebrews chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let me let you know there is going to be a slide that you'll want to take a picture of with your phone. So if you want to grab that out of your back pocket, you're more than welcome to do that. Um, I'll encourage you actually to do it with this particular slide. It'll be something for you for homework later. And before we get into our study, let me say I am so excited about the mariachi band coming to the picnic. Um, In fact, I used to like the street dogs that we would serve at the picnic. Now I could care less about the street dogs. I can't wait. I'm just going to follow the mariachi band around. It'll be me and... Okay, Jocelyn, you're Samoan. You're Samoan. (laughs) I love it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for just the excitement of the saints. And I really look forward to meeting the people that you've been praying for at that picnic. Your pastors will be there. And if they're not saved, here's the symbol. Okay? When you shake my hand, go... Just like, you shake your hand and just go go like this, and I'll know, okay, engage. They need the gospel, okay? And what I'll do is I'll plant a little seed, and then you get to water it. Amen? Amen. Are we in a deal? We're in agreement? Now, if you're not saved here tonight, now you know the secret. So whenever someone goes like this, you know we're out to get you for Jesus. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word again. And as we dig into Hebrews chapter 6, I pray that you would give us spiritual minds. For the writer is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, sending out a warning. And as a pastor, sometimes when I have to communicate an exhortation, Lord, my heart's troubled, my heart is beating But I'd rather be the kind of doctor that exposes cancer than just let the patient walk out of my door hoping that there would be change. So I pray that your word would have its impact. And I know when I pray that, it's true, because your word never returns void. So it's in Jesus' name we all said. Why? Would you ever leave Christ? I mean, I don't know why people in our church don't come to Thursday night. This is a great night. Much less, why would you ever leave Christ? That's the issue here in Hebrews. And gently, over the course of five chapters, the author, who I believe is the Holy Spirit, the author has been purposing to persuade these struggling Jewish Christians to not depart from the faith, nor to drift away. He's inspired them to be diligent about their faith and to remember that if they've ever fallen, that they have a high priest. In fact, he calls him Jesus, our great high priest. He tells us that he's compassionate He can sympathize with our weakness. And even if we go astray, he comes after us. He leaves the 99 to get the one. The resurrection? Oh, the power of the resurrection, the writer has made sure to let us know that it proves, it confirms he's the son. And also confirms the calling of God in his life to be our great high priest. If you take a look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, the power of the resurrection also confirms something else. Look at Hebrews 5, 9 as a measure of review. And having been perfected, having done everything that God asked him to do, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus wrote the book on how to be eternally saved. Why would you walk away from that great truth? Why would you not run to our great high priest? Well, we've got to remember, 
these Christians were going through some problems, some family problems. There were Jews in their family that could not believe that they would become Christians and follow the man that was crucified. They didn't believe that he was the God-man. How could you follow that criminal against the Jewish faith? They were facing pressure from friends and business around them. In fact, people had stopped doing business with them because they were following after Christ. And now, even more so from the Romans, they were facing persecution. That's why uh, the writer would say later in the uh, Hebrews chapter 13, remember those who are in prison as if you're chained yourself. They were facing major persecution. A little bit sounds like what we could possibly be going through today. Pressure of work, and they can't believe that you're a Holy Mary or a Saint Joseph, and how could you be following Jesus Christ and not act like we do? Maybe you're facing your own problems or even quite possibly some persecution. Now, I say that word very lightly because what we might ever experience as persecution here in the United States of America would never compare with what people are being persecuted with around the world. But here they are. They are walking through this particular problem And then what they decided to do, what we learned last week, was develop a form of faith that he calls very elementary, very childish. See, what this elementary faith did was it relieved some of the problems. It relieved some of the family pressure. It relieved some of the persecution because what they chose to do was they decided to focus on the doctrines of Judaism and Christianity and what they shared, what they were in common with. And he pointed out several of those things in Hebrews chapter 6. They had settled on things that would not offend the Jews, but yet Christians could embrace Many churches today are doing the same thing. Not Calvary Chapel, South Bay. You see, many churches today have decided we're going to focus on love and peace. We're going to focus on social issues. In fact, we're going to focus on political reform. Some churches are focused on disaster relief. And in a sense, all of those things are great. And when we settle with the doctrine of the world, and the world is loving, The world knows how to be charitable. The world knows how to be giving. These are things that we can settle on, but there's a problem if we choose just to settle there. You see, social issues and love, peace, joy, and happiness, these are all good. But if you ignore the cross to accomplish the task, you have begun to compromise the faith. And that's what they were doing. You see, Christians do good work because of the cross and for the cross. The cross is the dividing line between the good of the world and the greatness of our faith. You see, Understand, while we may go to Africa and dig a well, we might go to South America and build a school, my question is, are we telling them of their greater need of Jesus Christ? Or are we physically providing water and providing education, but allow them to be eternally separated from Jesus Christ? Another question. While we may in L.A. County take in foster children, are we leading them to the greatness of the cross? You see, the cross is the dividing line. Our motives are because of and for the cross. And when it comes to the world, when you mention the cross, they want nothing to do with it. So our author, he starts getting a little heavier in his style. Our author here begins to change his tone a little bit because he wants to give this church a very great warning. Take a look. It's Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to pick it up there in verse 10. Excuse me. Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. Hebrews chapter 5. Listen to the tone change. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness He's a baby. Sorry, he's a babe, but that's the intent. 
Solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, I need you to understand something. We are 25 years beyond the cross. Cross. These guys, these Hebrew Christians, have been Christians for 25 to 30 years, and he calls them babes. And he's beckoning them to grow up. He's beckoning them to come to a maturity where they embrace the cross through a constant connection with God and his word. Let me tell you what happens when you connect with God and his word. You gain discernment. You gain discernment. I'll never forget, one of my students was sitting in my office and she was about to quit. And so I began to speak into her life. And it's obvious the things that were in her life that were not so good and the things that were in her life that were not, that were not so good. I read the word of God. And when you look at someone's life, you can discern what's good and what's not so good. This word discern what's good and evil, it means you can make a good judgment because you know the truth. Well, as I was beginning to minister to her, she decided that she was not going to quit. She went up into the lunchroom at, there at the school. And when she sat down, she was from Boston. She was about this big. She had a Bostonian accent, and everybody was afraid of her. Okay, no matter. She was literally this big, but because she was from Boston, they were terrified of her. Sorry if you're from Boston, but there's something about people from Boston that you're a little afraid of. So she sits down like this. And while she's sitting there, no one bothers her. And then all of a sudden, about 10 minutes in, she looks up and she goes, Whatever you do, don't go into his office. He can read your mind. No, I can't read people's minds. But because I'm in the word of God, I can discern what's good and what's not so good. You see, the word of God gives us discernment. And let me tell you something about the word of God. The word of God does not struggle with clarity. The word of God does not... God is not concerned about what you think about what he says. We care what people think about us. So we try to soften things when we communicate to others. But can I let you know, God is not so concerned. He's more concerned that he's clear on what he wants to say. And the word clearly reveals what, God's think is, what God thinks is good, and it clearly reveals what God thinks is evil. Now here's the thing, as human beings at times, we may not agree especially when Jesus tells us to love our enemy. Well, he certainly never met her. (laughs) You know when the Lord speaks to you something that there's something that you may not agree with. Well, I need to let you know something. Even though you don't agree, that doesn't change God's mind. Doesn't change God's mind. Let me express that truth. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel tells Saul the word of the Lord. Go into that Amalekite place and destroy it. I want you to get rid of every living thing. But Saul, (laughs) he was looking at their sheep and their goats, and he's like, surely God would not want me to destroy those great sheep and those great goats, and I'll keep the king alive, okay? We'll just make sure that everything's cool. Well, Samuel shows up on the scene. Take a look, 1 Samuel chapter 15. He says to Saul, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul, God told you what to do and you didn't do it. And because you didn't do it, guess what? You've lost the kingdom. Because God doesn't change his mind. He says what he says and he means what he says and he means what he says to say what it says. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't have to change his mind because he knows everything. That's our God. So it's important for the author that we know that because he's about to challenge the Hebrews with something in Hebrews chapter 6. 
Would you take a look as we pick it up now? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6. Now, many of you have been in fear and trepidation entering these verses. One of the greatest struggles theologically are our next three verses. So we're not going to go too far beyond them this particular evening. Let's take a look. Verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. Theologians have wrestled over these three verses for centuries. Let's take a look at them. Four. Verse four, it's the first letter, it's the first word, four. And this word is very important. Because this Greek word, it directly connects the succeeding statements with the preceding statements. It is like a glue that binds verses 1 through 3 to verses 4 through 6. That's important. So in other words, this exhortation is to the Hebrew Jews that are drifting, that are departing, and that are compromising their faith and have found this common ground to relieve a little bit of the pressure, a little bit of the problem, and a little bit of the persecution so they could just fit into their world unnoticed. Be very careful to notice. These guys, these Hebrew Christian church, they have had a very significant spiritual experience. I want you to take a look at there in verse 4. They were enlightened. They were enlightened. They were pulled from darkness and they were brought into light. Keep your finger here. Skip on over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. It'll be on the screen as well. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. I want you to see what these Christians were going, going through. But recall the former days, Hebrews 10.32, in which after you were illuminated, you were enlightened, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. He is speaking clearly to Christians. When you got saved, when you were enlightened, when you were illuminated, you remembered the struggles that you went through. Paul would use this same terminology in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He would say this. Take a look at the screen. But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the, look carefully, light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Jesus referred to himself as the light of the world. When you in the first century world would get saved, they would say that you were enlightened. Not only that, these guys tasted the heavenly gift. They tasted. That means they internalized the gospel. That means Christ is in them. Now, some have argued and said, well, they're not really saved because they just tasted. Really? Look on over to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 with me. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, same word is used. Hebrews 2, verse 9. Keep your finger. We're going to get back to Hebrews 6. Look at verse 9. Same word. But we see Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. So did Jesus not really die if he just tasted death? See, what you have to understand, what the writer is saying, it may have been just a taste, but you still get the full flavor. There's an ice cream in Florida. Yep, I'm going there. There's an ice cream in Florida. It's chocolate ice cream. It has chocolate hard shell swirls through it and chocolate-covered caramel truffles. Do you know what the name of this ice cream is called? Trinity. You know why it's called Trinity? 
Jesus invented it. No, I'm telling you. I am telling you. And I don't know if you've ever tasted ice cream before. Have you ever been to Baskin and Robbins and you want to figure out what flavor you want? What do you do? Do you get a scoop or do you get a taste? And you know exactly what it is with just a taste. You see, that's what the writer is trying to get across. They tasted the heavenly gift. They internalized. And what's the gift? Well, we know what the gift is. It's Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The heavenly gift is Jesus. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's a gift from heaven. Not only that, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6, they were partakers of of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a very unique phrase. It's the only time that this phrase is used in the New Testament, a partaker of the Holy Spirit. So what we have to do is we have to understand, what's a partaker? Well, take a look at Luke chapter 5, verse 7. Same place this word is used. Take a look at Luke chapter 5, verse 7. So they signal to their partakers, there it is, partners, in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the both the boats so that they began to sink. You remember the story? He says, cast the net on the right side. He catches all these fish and they go, whoa, Zebedee company, come help us out. Come partner with us so that we can get these fish in. So what the writer is saying is that these people who have tasted the heavenly gift, been enlightened, they also work very closely with the Holy Spirit. Not just that. These guys tasted the good word of God and the power of the ages to come. In other words, these guys knew the word and they were operating in the power of the Holy Spirit at one time. Let me tell you something about these guys. I would have hired them on Calvary Chapel South Bay staff. I mean, spirit-filled believer, tasted, enlightened. I mean, these are incredible people that he's describing. They are saved people. But now the author challenges us with something that many people in the church seem to have a problem with. I don't, because God doesn't struggle with clarity. God puts it out there. And much like a doctor has to inform someone of a cancer that's within them, God has to inform the church of a very big word that has existed in the church since it began called apostasy. He says, it's impossible if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. Pastor Chet, I brought a friend. Like, I didn't know you were going to get all heavy. (laughs) We didn't come on church on Sunday because of the rain, so we felt guilty. We came on Thursday. You didn't realize Thursday was like this. Does this mean that salvation's not eternal when the Bible just said that he's the author of eternal salvation? Is there a contradiction? I mean... Can I lose my salvation? So what I want to do right now is let you know. Believer, listen. Let me assure you that your salvation is eternally secure. Let me assure you of that. And let me show you something in the Word of God. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. Maybe you'll put this down in your notes. Look carefully. I'm persuaded, absolutely convinced, he's writing by the power of the Holy Spirit, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities nor powers, so nothing spiritual, nor things present nor things to come, nothing in the world, nor height nor death nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, let me assure you of something. If you are saved, you are eternally secure. But I need you to see something in Romans chapter 8, verse 38. Nothing external can separate you from the love of God. But something internal can. 
Everything mentioned in this list is an external force upon you. And what Paul is letting us know, nothing externally can pull you from the love of Christ. Now hold on for a minute, because he's sending a warning. And what I need to do right now is warn the apostate, you can't lose your salvation, but you can leave it. You can choose to leave it. Now, there's a truth about Scripture that you need to hold on to. Listen carefully. Jesus will always leave the 99 to get the one. That is a promise in Scripture. And whenever I meet someone out in the lobby and they say to me, Hey, Pastor Chet, I walked away from the Lord and I came back. And I go, let me tell you who you are. You're a fulfillment of the promise of Jesus. He leaves the 99 to go get the one. It's just what Jesus does. There is always hope for a backslider. There is always hope for someone to repent. But if the one says... As Jesus is reaching that great shepherd of our faith and you're on the edge of a cliff and he's reaching out his hand and the person says, I don't want you. I like my cliff. And I'm staying out here. And he reaches his hand out for you to be saved and you choose not to reach your hand towards him. That's the apostate not the backslider. Someone who renounces their faith and does not take the hand of Jesus over the course of their life and dies is an apostate. Because let me tell you something about gentleman Jesus. He will never violate your free will. Now, free will has its good and its bad qualities. Let me explain. Because there's free will, we have crime. God's given free will. And he can't pick and choose who he gives free will to. And so people, they choose to do evil because God has allowed free will. Some people will choose Christ and they will go the way of doing good their whole life. But God doesn't violate our free will. He won't do it. He's a gentleman. And so the people he's speaking about, look what the Bible says, It is impossible if they fall away. These people have fallen away. They're no longer drifting. They're no longer struggling. They're no longer fighting the fight. They have officially turned their back on God. Now, this is different from someone who's a believer that falls into sin. Falling into sin and falling away are two different concepts. When a believer falls into sin, there's conviction. I can't believe I did what I did. You ever felt that way? Have you ever been so upset with your kids and something just came out your mouth, you had no idea that that was even in you? And then... Everyone that just looked at me like, I can't believe you ever would do that. You know you've had children. Have you ever been at work and that person walked by your office and you had a a nasty thought about what they would look like in a garbage can. You know why you're laughing? Conviction. Conviction. Conviction is proof of your salvation. You've got the Holy Spirit in you. The world's not convicted. The world don't care. The proof that you are saved is the fact that when you do something wrong, there's a conviction that is in you. Take a look at Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. Here's the hope of some, a believer that falls. Take a look. The Bible says, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. For a righteous man may fall seven times. How many of you have sinned more than seven times in your life? In your Christian life, you have sinned more than seven times. How many of you can understand this verse? How many of you are like, hallelujah, this verse is in the Bible? Okay. If, (laughs) how many of you sinned seven times in the last hour? Okay. You don't have to raise your hand. God bless you for your humility. God bless you. (laughs) For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. But the wicked shall fall by calamity. 
Let me express what this verse is getting across. Conviction brings confession, which causes us to rise from the muck and the mire of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've done something wrong. We know it's wrong by the conviction of the Spirit, and we choose to confess our sin. But let me tell you something about the wicked. The wicked have no desire to repent. They have no desire to ask Jesus for forgiveness. Now, keep that in mind. They have no desire to ask Jesus for forgiveness. And I need to let you know something. If we can put Proverbs chapter 24 back on the screen for just a moment. The Hebrew word fall and the second Hebrew word fall are two different words. Our English translation doesn't get it across. You see, the first fall is if he falls down. He can get back up again. The second fall is it brought him to ruin. And the word calamity is actually wickedness. But the wicked shall be ruined by wickedness. And I want to describe for you what the wickedness is. I won't repent. I won't go to Jesus. You see, they are crucifying Jesus again. Now, what in the world is the author trying to get across? Jesus goes back up on the cross again? No, no, no. You have to understand what he's trying to say. They know the shame that Jesus went through on that cross. They know the truth of the cross, and they don't care anymore. Let me explain. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, you don't need to turn to it. I encourage you to write it down. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the Bible encourages us to fix our eyes on the author and finish of our faith, the Lord Jesus, who despised the shame of the cross. In other words, he didn't even think about it because he was thinking about sitting at the right hand of God. So he despised the shame. And what the verse is saying, there is a shame an open shame about the cross. But when Jesus was dying on the cross, do you remember what he said? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. That was true of the people that were there at the event of the cross. But these guys were 25 years after the cross. They've been walking with Jesus. They know the power of the cross. They've tasted it. They've been enlightened. They've been illumined. They know the truth of the cross, and they're rejecting it. That's what the author is trying to get across and say. Let me explain it the way that Paul described it. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews says they've fallen away. Take a look how Paul describes it in 1 Timothy. Go with me there. We're going to come back to Hebrews in just a moment. Take a look what was happening in the first church. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy. This is serious, what I'm trying to get across to you. That's what he says. According to the prophecies previously made concerning you, verse 18 that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith, verse 19, and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith, look how Paul puts it, have suffered shipwreck. And now he mentions two, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Do you know what Paul's getting across here? There are those in the first church that had fallen away. And what he calls it is, their faith is shipwrecked. He even gives the name of two people in the church, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he's handed them over to to Satan. Now just imagine, if you come to my office and you choose to live in your sin, and as you're walking out, I say out loud, I'm handing you over to Satan. (laughs) 
If that wouldn't convert you right there and then, I don't know what it was. I love the power of the Apostle Paul for all of the church age. We know that Hymenaeus and Alexander were handed over to Satan. Whoa! Let me explain what this means, that he delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. This word learn, it means to be trained. Paul's hope for them was not to die in their rejection, but to see in this life that Satan is the wrong side to be on. Listen, you want your drugs? Go have them. Listen, you want to live in that alcohol? Go have them. See how it works. I'm handing you over to see if it works. Now, how many of you, don't don't raise your hand, you come from a drug and alcohol background and you discovered Satan didn't work? You had a relational background and you went from partner to partner to partner to partner and you just could find no fulfillment. How many of you found that Satan worked? There is no one that will ever find that doing it Satan's way will work. And what Paul is saying, listen, you want your drugs and alcohol? Go give it a shot and see if it works. You're always going to find out you're on the wrong side. And let me tell you something about God. God has always often used the attack of the enemy to make people wake up. It's the entire book of Judges. The entire book of Judges. People reject God. God sends an enemy. The people repent and God delivers them and they come back to God. Just read the book of Judges. I just gave you the book of Judges. You don't even have to read it. No, I want you to read it. But time after time after time after time, God uses the enemy to wake people up. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's handing them over in hopes in this life that they would repent. Because apostasy is not defined in this life. Apostasy is defined at death. Because church, I need to let you know something. There is Always hope for someone to turn back to Jesus. There is always hope. And what the author is doing is making a very clear warning. And maybe you'll write this down. It's impossible, if you don't want to repent, for you to have a relationship with God here or there. It's impossible if you don't want to repent. If you have made the decision when Jesus is reaching out his hand that you are not going to turn to him, it's impossible for you to have a relationship with God. Now, impossible, this is not the first time that the writer uses this word. Flip over a page, go back with me to Hebrews. I want you to see Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, the Bible says that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. In other words, it'll never happen. There is no way, there is no way to have a relationship with God if you are defiantly unrepentant. You know what Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse 3? In Luke 13, verse 3, he says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repentance is the key to get back into right relationship with God when you have found yourself in sin. If you choose to live in your sin, you are choosing to leave your relationship with God. This is a very strong warning. But I want to give you some hope. Because Jesus also said something in Luke chapter 18. Speaking into a situation, he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And let me tell you how you can get back into right relationship with Jesus. It's impossible for you to do it on your own. God has made a way for you to turn from your sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you choose to repent, you can turn back to God. 
All you have to do is repent. All you have to do is believe that Jesus is the only way. But these Hebrew believers, they were going back into the temple trying to find a common ground. So, hey, we've sinned. Uh, Maybe we'll just offer a sacrifice one more time. How many sacrifices do you need to put on the altar, Hebrew Jews? Wait a second. Jesus paid the price for you. All you have to do is repent. You see, church... We live in some compromising pressure in the 25th century, don't we? We live in the pressure of people being fine with Christians' charity. People are fine with Christians' generosity. People are fine with even our Christian work and hospitals and education and schools around the world. Just don't bring Jesus into it. Keep Jesus out of it. And we love your hospitals. Keep Jesus out of it. We love you digging wells. Keep Jesus out of it. And let's just do the social gospel. But there's no such thing as a social gospel. The gospel is called the everlasting gospel because he's the author of eternal salvation. And people need to repent in order to be saved. Now, we have to understand. Let me give you a story. When I was in Liberia, we wrote projects to the UN. And these projects were an opportunity for us to minister to child soldiers. And so we asked the UN to fund our projects so that we could do work in the jungle and be able to minister to child soldiers and bring them to Christ. When I handed in my first project to the UN... I met with the UN director. He slammed it on his desk and he said this, I'm appalled that you think Jesus Christ can change people's lives. And he kicked me out of his office. Felt like I suffered for Jesus. I walked out of the office. I was like, hallelujah. I don't need your money anyway. And then I went, Lord, where am I going to get this money? So we started by faith. And I went behind rebel lines and I found 12 kids. I figured Jesus had 12 disciples. I'm going to find 12 kids. And I found 12, seven, eight, nine year olds who were holding M16s and AK 47s when I met them. And I brought them to a home that I rented with Andre and I's support money. And I brought them there and I trained up a few counselors and they lived in the home with them. And all of a sudden their lives are being changed. So I did it again. And then I did it again. And every nine weeks after they would get out of the home and go into a Christian family home, I'd go get another 12 kids and I'd bring them out. Listen, six months later, the UN director came to my town, met with me and said, we would like to fund your project. You're the only project that's working in Liberia. Do you know what I said to him? You know what I said to him? I thought you were appalled that Jesus Christ is changing people's lives. Church, let me tell you something. The world loves our generosity. They love our charity. They hate the cross. And if you exit the cross out of the work, it's not a good work. It's just a work. A good work from heaven is always defined because of and for the cross. And what the author chooses to do, he actually gives us another example of someone who could be considered an apostate. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to pick it up there in verse 12. Now, this is the final, some of the final exhortations to these Hebrew Jews. He says this, Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down, the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet. In other words, get it together, guys, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. There's always hope. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's an evidence of your salvation. Verse 15, looking carefully, lest any one of you fall 
short, you just don't make it, of the grace of God. There's the warning again. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be in any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit his blessing, different from the birthright, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. The writer is using Esau as an example of an apostate. Esau was Isaac's son, the promised child son. Esau grew up in a believing home. He knew the Lord. But Esau made a decision. Esau chose his flesh over the spirit. And one day he came home and Jacob is cooking up some soup. And there in Genesis chapter 25, and he goes, give me some of that. I'm so hungry. And Jacob goes, give me your birthright. You can have it. I'll die of hunger. Let me tell you what the birthright is. The birthright is the spiritual leadership of the home. I don't care about spiritual things. I care about myself. I care about my food. I care about my woman. I care about my portfolio. I care about... You fill in your own blank. (laughs) All I care about is me and feeding my stomach. So I'm selling this spiritual thing. You can have it for that 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 little bit of soup. And then some time passes, and Isaac gets older. And now Isaac is dying. So Jacob and his mom, they come up with a little trick where Jacob walks in with goat skin on, and he puts some musk oil on or something to start smelling like Esau. And Esau, excuse me, Isaac blesses Jacob instead of Esau. And Hebrews 10 tells us why. Because Esau chose never to repent. He chose from the time of his birthright where he gave it up, He chose all the way the time to the time of blessing. In that time frame, Esau chose never to repent. And so he couldn't get the blessing. He made the decision, I want to be profane. I want to be worldly. I want to be ungodly. His appetite was for the flesh, though he knew the truth. Let me give you another example. Tell me, what was the difference between Peter and Judas's sin? They both denied Jesus. Judas betrayed him. What's worse than betrayal than a denial? They're both sin. The Bible says sin is sin. Tell me the difference between Judas and Peter. Why does Judas get the term son of perdition and Peter gets to lead the church? Because there is one profound difference between Judas and Peter. Judas sought forgiveness by remorse. He threw the money back. Peter sought repentance by running to Jesus. Judas thought, I can figure this thing out, but he couldn't. The only person that can forgive is no action that you do, no penance that you pay, no mountain that you climb. The only thing that brings you back into relationship with God is following the example of Peter. And when you hear that he rose from the dead, you run to the tomb because you know he's the only answer for your forgiveness. That is the truth of the word. Again, this is a powerful exhortation. And this is difficult to deliver. In fact, the author even knows the impact because many people, after reading verses 4 through 6, they're going to begin to wonder about their faith. That's exactly the impact the writer wants to have. And I got no problem with it. I got no problem with it. 
Because even the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, take a look at our screen. Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. He's writing to the church. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you're disqualified. He's writing to the church and he says to them, you guys are acting like hoodlums. That's the Chet version of the entire book of (laughs) 2 Corinthians. He says, are you, he's not talking about salvation here. He says, you're not acting like you're people of faith. So you need to find it. You need to compare the word of God to your life and see if you're measuring up to the word of God. So what the Holy Spirit does in the rest of this chapter, he gives us two indicators of the assurance of our salvation. That he truly is the author of eternal salvation. And I want to show you them real quickly so you don't walk out of here. The first one is this. That you're bearing much fruit. Take a look. Hebrews chapter 6. Go back there with me if you would. Hebrews chapter 6. He challenges them. And now in Hebrews chapter 6, he encourages them. He says, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and bristles, it's rejected and near to being cursed. Underline that. Near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Jesus said something profound that our author is taking this lesson from. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus makes it clear in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll know them by their fruits. Now you've got to understand, they're living in an agricultural society. And he uses an agricultural illustration to get the point across. The rain is not how we might look at, well, we look at like rain. In Florida, you don't look at rain as a blessing because it rains all the time. In California, we look at rain as a blessing. By the way, did you like our deadly, catastrophic hurricane? (laughs) My house recorded 0.2 inches. And I'm sorry for some of the roads that got, you know, but the news media blows my mind. And what the, I was going to say something, I decided not to. The Holy Spirit went like this. When rain falls on the ground, it produces a a crop. In fact, it produces a fruitful crop. But if thorns are produced, the only hope for that field is to burn it and start over again. Now, I used to make farms in Liberia. I understand this. And what we would do is we would burn the field. And we burn the field of all the weeds and all the thorns. And what those thorns and thistles would do would actually give nutrients to the soil to cause it to grow. And I'll never forget we burned one field. And unfortunately, a python was in the field when we burned it. It had just swallowed a little mongoose. When they swallow, they can't move. So when we burned the field, the snake barbecued. So the Africans were all excited. They're like, whoa, we got dinner. And it was like, yeah. Then they realized that something was in its stomach. So, excuse me, they, the snake, okay, they cut the head off the snake. And the thing was still alive. And it came out. When it came out. They hit it on the head and killed it and ate it. And I thought to myself, you almost made it, champ. (laughs) True story. I couldn't believe it. I was like, this poor little guy, that's a bad day. It's a bad day. He's not referring to an eternity spent without God because he says they're near to being cursed. No, what he's trying to get across is if the rain is poured down in someone's life and it's producing sinful behavior, we've got to burn that field. 
We've got to hand them over, let them see that Satan's not the way to go. And he's going to prove it later in Hebrews chapter 12 where he says, the Lord disciplines the son he loves. He'll always burn the field to get our attention. He'll do whatever it takes to get your attention because he's not concerned with your happiness. He's concerned with your holiness. He's concerned that you're conformed into the image of Jesus. He's not concerned about the portfolio or the relationship. He's concerned about the relationship that you have with God. So the rain should produce fruit in our life. I ask you to take your phones out, and this is your homework. The Bible speaks about five different kinds of fruit, and I'm not going to go through them. You're going to study them before Sunday. And when I see you in the lobby on Sunday, I'm going to ask you, did you study? Take a look. I want you to see, and maybe you'll take a picture. Look at this. There are five things that the Bible says that I want you to study. You know, you are assured of salvation if you've got Christ-like character. It's Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love. You're a loving person. You're not a mean, angry person. Fruit, good works. Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, being fruitful in every good work. A faithful witness. Paul's on his way to Rome. And he says, listen, I'm coming to you and I'm hoping to bear some fruit from some of your lives. In other words, I'm hoping to come to Rome and get some people saved. You are a gospel machine. You're at Target. You're at Walmart. You're at uh, your grocery store. You're at Ralph's. You're at Numero Uno in San Pedro. Let me tell you, that place has got the best guacamole you have ever tasted in your life. The amount of lime they put in it, I guarantee one of those containers has seven limes in it. And they got great chicharrones there. <laughs> you are a worshiper. You're, you're willing to give the sacrifice of praise. The Bible says the fruit of our lips giving praise to God. When that song goes, your hands are up. Thank you, Jesus. And some of us are like, can we clap? Is that too loud? Should I raise my hands? Like, what is the right way as a Christian to raise your hand? Do you put your elbows out, your hands like this? Do you stand like this and go like that? Like, how do you do this? Do you do this? we're, We're now in the flappers, like the flappers. Like, what is the right way? No, the right way is to just simply, when that music starts, what erupts out of you because you're a Christian is to worship the king that saved you. He says this. Take a look. He says, the last one is that you're a generous giver. Paul writes and he says, I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. How many of you are broke in heaven? No one raises their hand. (laughs) You don't give. You don't care to give. And the India trip is going on their way. Well, God bless them. The Bible says that every dollar you put towards the kingdom, you're actually putting as a deposit in your heavenly bank account. I knew it would would get down to money. I knew he was getting there. (laughs) Listen, I say this quite confidently. When I walked out of the UN and I said goodbye to a large lump sum of money, and Jesus still provided me, I say quite confidently, God will advance his kingdom with or without you. It's to your benefit of bearing fruit. But finally, and this is where I close, I want you to see Hebrews chapter 6. He encourages them again in Hebrews chapter 6, now verse 9. First he says, listen, let me assure you your salvation. Your salvation is assured by bearing fruit. The rain of God is poured in your life and you're producing fruit. Now he says in verse 9, but beloved, I love how he eases the tension a little bit. We're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. He commends them with confidence that they're saved, but he still challenges them. And I find myself in this position a lot. As a pastor, like I said earlier, 
It's difficult to be the doctor to come into the room and say you have terminal cancer. But I'm not a good doctor if I don't tell you the truth. And when you're sleeping with your girlfriend, and I got to walk in and say, you're in sin. You're not married to this girl. It's not fair to her nor to her future husband that you're taking from her something that belongs to someone else. Well, I never. You know what I respond? I wish you never would have. Well, I didn't know you were that kind of pastor. It's funny, everybody wants to meet with me until I give that kind of illustration. (laughs) Amen? Amen? A few people said amen. (laughs) Then he says this. For God's not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you've shown toward his name and that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. He reveals to them, listen, I can see evidence of your salvation. You're ministering. You're bearing fruit. You're doing the work of the ministry. You care about advancing God's kingdom. Verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you don't become sluggish, but you imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he patiently endured, take a look, he obtained the promise. Number two. He says, listen, number one, I want you to bear fruit. That proves your salvation. But what else proves your salvation? Patiently endure, just like Abraham. Abraham should have given up, but he didn't. And he inherited Isaac. Do you know that endurance is Christ-like? And that when you're enduring, you actually prove the spirit of Christ is in you? Because do you know how much endurance it took to get up Calvary's hill? And when you choose to endure, you're proving Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen? Now, I know what's going to happen out in the lobby. So, Pastor Chet, did you say we could lose our salvation? No, I didn't. There is hope for everyone to return in this life. But if you choose to walk away from Jesus and you choose not to reach out to his loving hand, when you die, you declare yourself an apostate. I had tasted, but I rejected And rejecting him here is rejecting him there. Did you feel the heat? Good. The writer wanted you to. Not me. (laughs) Jesus did. Father, I'm so thankful for your word. You don't struggle with clarity. We struggle just like Saul with embracing every bit of your word. That's why we have pet doctrines. We like some, we don't like others. So we create pet doctrines that fit what we think. But your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. And so, Lord, we come before you and I ask for forgiveness. And I pray the spirit of Saul out of this church. I pray, Lord, that whatever you say and whatever rain falls on us, we bear fruit, not thorns. And if there are thorns, burn the field. And let, it, let the burning produce a nutrient where a tree of righteousness will grow. And like the Apostle Paul, If we think Satan's going to work, 
hand us over so that we can realize in this life that's the losing team and you're the winner Jesus you meant this to be serious because you want us to examine our faith and that's okay you're Jesus you can do that you died on the cross you're the master we're the servant you're the Lord we're your people So, Lord, as we study our fruit verses, I pray that we'd examine where are we in the faith? Where do we need to grow? Where do we need to change? In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.